Hello, friends. Nice to see you. And for those of you online, welcome. We're glad you're here. We've been in this series, Unexpected Acts. And if you've read through the book of Acts and you've been following along in the series, you realize there's all kinds of things going on that, surprise, things like that are happening. Christ appears to the apostles after his resurrection. I think it was a bit unexpected to them. He ascends to heaven before their eyes. The Holy Spirit comes down, descending as flames, tongues of fire. The apostles are speaking in tongues that they don't know, communicating to the people in the city. Peter heals a lame man. Then there's Saul's encounter on the road to Damascus. Wow, what a scene. Peter raises A girl from the dead. An angel rescues Peter from prison. And then there's this big council where they decide a bunch of things that are actually going to shape this new church. And then there's these missionary journeys of Paul as he moves throughout the world. And we see the gospel communicated in such a profound and large way. The scope is amazing. And then Paul's taken to Rome for trial and shipwrecked on the way. And he gets bitten by a snake, poisonous. Everybody's watching, waiting for him to drop dead. And it doesn't happen. It's a bit unexpected. I think they're still talking about that in Malta. (laughs) Now, chapter 15, we see the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And today we're going to focus on a phase of that trip that took him into Europe. We're going to see the first record of the gospel impact there. And the move to Europe is interesting because 300 years earlier, Alexander the Great, beginning in Europe and moving east, had brought the Greek dominance and Hellenistic culture to the world. And now we see Paul moving in the opposite direction, starting in the east and moving west, but this time it's bringing Jesus and the good news. Paul's second journey, is, it's kind of interesting. Luke records for us a process. It's clear that Paul and his team, it took them a while to get it right. It almost seems to me like a missional game of red light, green light. You may have played that game, and you're trying to get your way up to the line, and it's red light, green light, and it's move, don't move. And so in Acts 16, we see this unfold. Paul comes to Derby and then to Lystra. He picks up Timothy along the way. And in verse 4 of chapter 16, it says, They traveled from town to town. They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. But then it goes on in verse 6 to say this, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. See, Paul and his team, they're experiencing some red lights as they move through the region. Asia? Nope. Okay, Bithynia. No. 
And we'll come back to that in a bit. But now, all of a sudden, there's this green light. And it's here where we pick up the action in verse 9 of our text. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And this passage goes on to describe what happened now that they have a green light. Something interesting happens here in this text. Dr. Luke, the author, begins to narrate in the first person. He must have joined them at Troas because now it's we put out to sea. He's in the thick of the action with them as they move forward. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went to Neapolis. And from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Luke's part of this team now. And they've moved into Philippi. So you could ask the question, so what's so significant about Philippi? Well, it is an important Roman city. It was situated on the Via Ignatia that ran from the, the west, the Adriatic Sea, to the east, what we now know as Istanbul. It was a huge trading route, commerce everywhere, and it made Philippi a hub of activity. Now, usually, when Paul entered a new community, one of the first things he would do is he would go and look for the synagogue. And he would use that synagogue as a base for his ministry in that region. But in Philippi, no synagogue. There wasn't one. So Paul and his team had to go looking for people who were engaged in Jewish religious practices. On the Sabbath, it says in verse 13, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. It's significant that Paul and his team meet a group of women. Women who were gathered to pray, participating in the Sabbath rituals, even though there was no synagogue. See, in that era, a community had to have 10 Jewish men in order to set up a synagogue. That's where all of their rituals and their practice would take place. And so here in Philippi, they didn't even have that small nucleus of Jewish believers in order to set up the synagogue. But down by the river, a natural place for Jewish gatherings to occur, where they could have their ceremonial washings and all the other elements of their practice, Paul finds a group of devout women, and so they sit down and begin to share the good news with them. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to come to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Who's Lydia? What's the significance of this conversion? Well, Lydia is a woman of influence. 
a dealer in the high-end purple fabric that was sought after by the rich and also by those that were the politically elite. She was probably wealthy and found herself immersed in the commerce and the bustle of Philippi on a daily basis. And yet, on the Sabbath, she wasn't at work. She was down at the river praying. See, Lydia was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. And yet, she is described as a worshiper. She had not formally adopted the Jewish religious tradition, but was drawn to the worship of the one true God. And she was doing this in the context of a very pagan culture. And on this Sabbath, down by their meeting place at the river, praying, Lydia heard the gospel and responded. The gospel. What was it that Paul shared with her? Perhaps the most succinct expression of what the gospel is is found in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, the first eight verses, we read this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. The gospel, what is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to this growing group of people, resurrected, alive, The gospel, what a powerful, impacting message. And the simplest, perhaps most succinct invitation to respond to the gospel is also in Paul's writings in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's there, right there. You have the problem, you have the solution, And you have the process to embrace. For the wages of sin is death. Sin. It's missing the mark. It's being unable on the basis of our own effort to gain right standing with God. And the wages of that that we have earned, it's death. But not just physical death. It's also spiritual death. Not just the spiritual deadness now but for all eternity, separated from God forever. But that simple little verse goes on. But the gift of God is eternal life. The opposite of that deadness that I just described, and this gift is found in Jesus Christ. Remember, 
Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and on and on. Now, I don't know the words Paul used. I often think about these things. What would it have been like to have been sitting down on that riverbank that Sabbath day as Paul and his team just kind of slide in there with this group of women as they're praying? And all of a sudden, there's this conversation, and Paul is explaining the gospel to this group. I don't know the words that Paul spoke that day on the riverbank, but I do know that this is what he communicated to that group of women. The gospel, the good news, that God loves them and has made a way for them to be brought back into right relationship with himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, earlier, we talked about the red light, green light game that Paul and his group found themselves in. Let's go to Asia. Red light. Okay, Bithynia. Red light. Then all of a sudden, the vision of a man from Macedonia. Come help us. And then a green light, finally. And they're up and they're going. Now, I would like to assume, I would like us to assume, Lydia had this same red light, green light experience going. She's a businesswoman from where? Thyatira. But now she finds herself moving to Philippi. Now, we don't know what caused her to move, but whatever it was, it led to her life intersecting with Paul's on that Sabbath day down by the river. All this movement. See, the text says that she was a worshiper. Another way to describe that was that she was a God seeker. But actually what's happening in this text, we see God seeking her. God is the one doing the seeking. Think about how much effort God went to to get Paul and Lydia in the same place so Lydia could hear the gospel and be saved. It's amazing. I like N.T. Wright's thought here. He says this, Perhaps... Indeed, it was partly through Lydia's prayers that Paul had received his vision in Troas. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Anyway, the word Paul preached was, in Lydia's case, tapping at a window that was already open. That's such a beautiful phrase. The word Paul preached was, in Lydia's case, tapping at a window that was already open. She was ready. And through this series of open and closed doors, red lights, green lights, all of a sudden there together, the gospel's preached and she is now transformed and made new in Jesus. It's the sovereign hand of God at work, moving, orchestrating. Now, Lydia wasn't just the first convert in Philippi. She was also the first known convert in all of Europe. What a moment. I bet you didn't see that coming. A bit unexpected. See, this passage shows us clearly the various roles of those who were involved in Lydia coming to faith. She was a seeker. 
Paul and his team proclaimed the gospel. And the Lord opened her heart. See, God's at work drawing Lydia to himself. And he used Paul and his team as they served him, ending up in the right place at the right time with the right message. The text goes on to describe how Lydia's whole household came to faith. That's quite staggering. All of a sudden, like wildfire, this good news is spreading, transforming not just one life, but many lives. Oh, but it actually says something else in the text, too. It wasn't just that their Lydia and her household were saved. It was also they were baptized. <laughs> what an amazing, amazing synergy we're experiencing this weekend. It's this bright beam of revelation shining forward to us as we see this weekend at least 43 people baptized across every one of our campuses and congregations. It's incredible. Lydia and those in her household were saved and baptized. And when you look at the book of Acts, you see this time and time again. Salvation and baptism were inextricably linked. People got saved and then they got baptized. I know that you in the back getting ready to be baptized are watching this. Way to go. It's fantastic. Now, Dawn and I were recently in London, and we were on the tube as we were exploring around. And repeatedly you would hear this phrase, mind the gap. Mind the gap. They were polite. It was proper. But they're reminding you. you they're concerned. They don't want you to trip on the gap between the train and the platform. And in the church, we need to mind the gap as well. We need to make sure we don't create a large gap between our conversion and our baptism that ultimately can trip us up. What an amazing thing to be able to witness the baptism of our friends, our family, this weekend. Now, it took 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue in any community. And yet it only took one woman brought to life in Jesus to see the beginning of a church in Philippi. A church that would thrive. I think that's rather unexpected. It's not some big flashy event. It's not this tongues of fire dropping. It's not people being raised from the dead. Or is it? Just God doing what he always does, transforming a life. I think this happens all the time in heaven. This is just my little theory. I think all the angels, everybody, they're all up there. And I think repeatedly this scene gets unacted. And I think it got unacted that day. God looking down. Hey, guys, come here. <laughs> Watch this. Right? Watch this. Red light, green light. See, here's the real green light as Lydia's life is transformed. And she would play a key role in the church, initially having them gather in her home. We even see them coming back to her home at the end of the chapter. One web source describes the influence of the church at Philippi this way. Paul would go back to the church at Philippi again on his third missionary journey. 
And the believers there gave generously to support Paul's ministry as well as the church in Jerusalem. While Paul was imprisoned in Rome, the church at Philippi sent Epaphroditus to minister to him. In return, Paul sent Timothy to the congregation at Philippi. From the time it was established, the church at Philippi was healthy, it was strong, it was generous, becoming a model church that only experienced minor problems. And after the apostolic age, the early church father Ignatius traveled through Philippi, and Polycarp wrote a famous letter to the church there. See, having sovereignly orchestrated her salvation, now Lydia, saved, makes a difference for the kingdom, even impacting Paul's life. Oh, as you think about this amazing scene, who do you resonate with right now in this moment? Maybe it's Lydia. Maybe God is doing for you today what he did for her. Orchestrating events in such a way that you would have found yourself here within the sound of my voice, hearing the gospel. And God is moving in your life, drawing you to himself. Today, you can open your heart to Jesus, just like Lydia did. The experience she had on that riverbank outside of Philippi can be yours right now. All that's required is that you have a conversation with Jesus. That's what we call prayer. And that you invite him into your life, having asked him to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you. I'm going to pray. And if that's you, if this is your moment, if the light is going green for you right now, I want you to pray with me. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, what an amazing scene. And yet the reality is that that scene has played itself over and over and over again down through the centuries my life, others. And friends, I pray for you if today is the day where you are sensing that tug from God. Come to me. Just pray this with me. Oh, Father, I bow in your presence. And I acknowledge my sin. I've been going my own way. I've been doing my own thing. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I want to turn and follow you. So I invite you into my life as Savior. I surrender my life to you as Lord. And I thank you that right now in this moment, I'm experiencing new life in Jesus that I had never known was even possible. Thank you, Jesus, for transforming my life. Use me to make a difference, I pray. Amen. Oh, friend, if that's you, welcome to the family. It's fantastic. We want to help you grow. There'll be people after the service here, people online that would love to connect with you and encourage you in this new journey that you find yourself on. 
Maybe, though, today, it's Paul you resonate with. And before we kind of think about the red light, green light journey of Paul's experience in this scene, I want to just unpack a little something that we might miss if we're not careful. See, Paul's upbringing, if you think about it, he was raised in an incredibly strict, fundamental Jewish sect. He described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. One of the realities of that would have been deep-seated prejudices that had been hardwired into his life. Growing up, one of the things that he would have prayed would have been this, God, thank you that I was not born a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. We're repelled by that. And yet that was Paul's reality. And yet now in this chapter, as, we begin his, as he begins his mission to the West, he finds himself encountering groups of people. Who? <laughs> Women? A slave? Gentiles? The very people that he would have been prejudiced against growing up. He is now being called to and he is leaning in. He is serving them. He is ministering to them. He is loving them. See, Paul's conversion resulted in the dismantling of years of hardwired prejudice and now he's off ministering to those very people. Here's a question for us. Where has prejudice been wired into your heart? Where do you need God to dismantle prejudice that would keep you from ministering to people who need and are open to the gospel? See, as a believer, you need to seek and submit to God's divine direction. Let him change your heart. He closes doors. He opens doors. It's that whole red light, green light thing so that he can get you He can get us in front of the right people at the right time so that we can proclaim the good news and God can open their hearts, bringing them to himself. Is he trying to get your attention in these days? Is he orchestrating events, trying to get you into a particular place in front of particular people? Oh, friends, pay attention. Let him lead and guide. Because there just may be a Lydia waiting. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what an amazing story. It's incredible. You, the sovereign God, working, moving, orchestrating events so that on that day in that riverbank... Paul and Lydia had a conversation that changed her life and began a church and embedded a movement of the gospel in this key strategic place in Europe. Oh, Father, I believe that you're orchestrating those same types of events in our lives. You're trying to get our attention so that we will be, we will be in the right place, at the right time, with the right message, to see someone's light go green, transformed 
by the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Oh God, we're available. Use us. We want what you want, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Well, what about some baptisms? Let's do that. Bless you.